excuse any background noise that you might hear. I'm currently in the basement and that's where the freezer, the furnace, and all the water pipes are. So that's super fun. I was literally getting ready to go to the car because people say that that's the best place to record. But literally as I went to go grab my sweater so I could sit in there, my dad was simultaneously zipping up his own sweater. And it's not the first time this happens. I swear to God, every single time I have plans to use the car that's been sitting there for like the past few hours, my dad all of a sudden has the urgent need to use it for something. And I can't even get mad because it's his car. Like he's the one who paid for it. Yeah, it's for the family, but I only pay insurance and that's not even a fraction of the cost of the car. Like it's his car. So let's just get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Venting Sesh. I'm your host, Amhani Suger. Thank you for tuning in on this most special episode. I'm like super giddy right now. Like I'm smiling from ear to ear because I'm just so excited to record this one for y'all because I put a lot of work into it and it's like my baby and it's my very first episode. So I'm really excited. <laughs> Anyways, before we get into it, Um, On a more serious note, I'd like to begin this session by acknowledging that the land I currently reside on is stolen land. Land which belongs to various groups of people who continue to face abuse by the Canadian and other governments. While land acknowledgements do have valid criticisms because they can come off very virtue signally and are rarely followed up with any actual plans to return this land to its rightful owners, they can also be a means of raising awareness on the issue of unceded territories and ensuring that Indigenous peoples remain on our minds the importance of which I'll get into later on. This whole discussion is particularly relevant in this episode, as we'll be talking about injustices that Indigenous peoples face and their activism against such injustices. I'm literally shivering right now because I finally got the car. (laughs) It's like 9 p.m. And this is the only way that I can get it. So anyways, I'm like shivering because I don't want to turn the car on because that would emit um, gas into the environment and I don't want to contribute to that any more than I already do so um you know if I like have to take a pause to just shiver (laughs) allow me (laughs) um but yeah I'd like to preface this episode as I will with future episodes by saying that I am not an expert I do not belong to an indigenous community and do not identify as an indigenous person I am not a student of Indigenous studies or in any way a professional on the topic of of issues, sorry, that Indigenous communities face. However, comma, I am passionate about discussing social justice, this podcast being a case in point, and I do think that injustices against Indigenous peoples often go overlooked. Since there are too many single issues to address regarding this topic, and I don't want to gloss over any of them, I decided that I'd talk about the struggle for land ownership as it pertains to Indigenous communities living in the country most people refer to as Canada, also the land on which I was born and raised. Go insert popular Canadian sports team here. Clearly, I'm not a big sports fan, but I do love a good history lesson, so let's get into it. 
As we all know, in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and the lives of indigenous peoples have never been the same since. When I was in middle and high school, I was required to take history courses, or social studies, as we called it in elementary school. We mainly focused on European expansion into the Americas, you know, the creation of trading ports for the exchange of natural resources such as beaver felt and ox meat, how indigenous peoples were also very excited to share their knowledge of hunting and agriculture with their most gracious colonizing guests who came to improve the lives of such noble savages. I swear, we read more about the French and English oppressors than we did the indigenous peoples they mistreated. I learned ever so briefly about a fraction of said maltreatment, and I was heartbroken and enraged every time we learned about it. It made me so upset that this diverse group of people had been so immensely taken advantage of and are still being given the proverbial short end of the stick today. Now, as much as I dislike that every time we think about indigenous peoples, we immediately think of residential schools, high suicide rates, and intergenerational trauma, these are important problems that we need to discuss. I will try my best to incorporate indigenous success stories as well, because believe it or not, they do exist. Indigenous peoples are still here today because of all their hard work in preserving their various cultures and traditions. As one of my favorite white men, John Green, once said, Indigenous peoples are people who acted in history, not just people who are acted upon by it. I say Indigenous peoples because indigeneity is a complex and plural identity. There are plenty of Indigenous tribes within Canada, let alone around the world. Anyways, as I mentioned earlier, learning about some of the ways the Canadian government has royally screwed over Indigenous peoples in the past, and continues to do so today, was a part of my formal education for a long time. It wasn't until I attended university, though, that I learned more about the real history of the colonization of what people once called the New World. In my first year, I took a history course called Cultures of North America. And I'm not going to lie, it was boring as hell. So many of the lessons were too dry and straightforward, and a bitch loves her some nuance. The lecture halls were also small and dimly lit, and the professor was very intimidating. Her name was Jean, and I remember leaving a review on Rate My Profs where I wrote that her parents should have called her mean. It's an admittedly lame burn, but I was very satisfied with it at the time. (laughs) The one thing I did enjoy about that course were the tutorial discussions, during which our group would talk about some of the anti-indigenous racism that prevails in policies, western paintings, even the very history books we were required to read for class. The TA was also a very generous grader, which made the experience all the more enjoyable for my overachieving ass. The course was organized as a timeline of events, starting with the Great League of Peace, a union between the Oneida, the Cayuga, the Seneca, and later the Mohawk and the Onondaga, and ending with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a document including testimonies made by survivors of residential schools. In between these major lessons, we learned about the civilizations which thrived in this continent long before Bully came along. Civilizations like the Aztec and the Inca of Central and South America, and the Zuni and Hopi of North America. 
powerful indigenous communities who are getting along just fine without intervention, contrary to European imperialist beliefs. We also revisited when colonization started in Canada, something I didn't care enough to pay attention to in a class that didn't cost $700 to attend. Shortly after the aforementioned Christopher and his goons set their disease-ridden feet on the Americas, other European quote-unquote explorers came a-running. One such minion was Jacques Cartier, who was sent by head colonizer Francis I of the French government to see what resources they could exploit from this newly discovered place. The terms that we always learned about in these history courses were God, gold, and glory. You might have heard of them too if you've ever taken a history course in North America. That's what Colomb Barbarian and his French and Spanish counterparts wanted to achieve when they arrived here. And in technical terms, fucked shit up. Wars and battles were fought, and I'll spare you the gruesome, gut-wrenching details. I will highlight some of the W's gained by indigenous forces against the land-grabbing enemy, though. There was Pope's Rebellion of 1680, which was won by Pueblo Indians in league with Apaches. There was Pontiac's War of 1763, which was fought by the Ottawas, reinforced by the Wyandots, Ojibwas, and Potawatomis, and resulted in policy changes, which is always a mega win. There is St. Clair's Defeat of 1791, which was won by a Northwestern Confederacy, which then consisted mainly of the Shawnee, Delaware, Ottawa, Iroquois, Ojibwa, Miami, and Potawatomi peoples. There was the Red Clouds War of 1866, which was won by the Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Northern Arapaho. And then there was the Battle of the Little Bighorn of 1876, which also crowned the Lakota Sioux, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho as victors. So, why am I giving you all this backstory? Well, for starters, I'm a huge nerd, and I find this kind of thing fascinating. But, more importantly, history is an important lens by which to view current issues. I want to stress the importance of human action. Just look at how a small group of morons' greed and blatant disregard for human life encouraged more dummies to come around and engage in the same tyranny, altering the course of all of our lives for centuries to come. I mean, think about what it would be like if Columbimbo never arrived in the Americas in the first place. I mean, America as we know it wouldn't even exist. All these first-generation Canadians would still be in their home countries, and our home countries would probably be better places to live because the American army wouldn't be sending troops into our homes to bomb our children and exploit our resources, leaving us with nothing. But I digress, because this isn't a philosophical podcast for contemplating the domino effect as it pertains to colonization. So, let's make like Michael J. Fox and teleport back to the future to discuss where the contemporary landback movement stands. When I tell you that this took a lot of research, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about all of it, you should take a seat, because I just might go on a few tangents despite my best efforts at staying on topic. Because the thing is, the landback movement is so very complex and central to indigenous activism as a whole. 
One of the first videos I watched about the issue distinguished between land ownership, which is what we often think indigenous peoples are requesting when they call for land reclamations, and land stewardship, which some people argue is more in line with many indigenous conceptions of the land. It's kind of confusing, but let me try to explain. What I understood from my endless scrolling on YouTube is that some indigenous peoples see themselves as caretakers of the land. And I say that with hesitation, only because this concept of indigenous peoples being caretakers has been described by some as an unfair role, because it puts all the onus of environmental efforts onto indigenous communities, when in reality we should all be making efforts towards environmental sustainability, you know? But back to the discussion of land stewardship. Indigenous peoples never really practiced owning land before colonization because that would require them to perceive themselves as superior to the land, right? Because you can't own something that is of equal or higher value than yourself. Like, you can't own people, for example. Although, you know, slavery. But we'll get into that in a later episode. Indigenous peoples see themselves as equal to the land and its inhabitants, and so they have mutually beneficial relationships to the land, relationships that are being infringed upon by federal policies. Of course, indigenous peoples aren't a monolith, as we've already established. They have a variety of opinions and views. So, when some indigenous peoples call for their land back, they really do mean a reclamation of their inherent land ownership. For others, it means more comprehensive land claims and self-governing agreements. This is where treaties come in. Because, from my understanding, treaties are supposed to protect and ensure equal-slash-equitable rights and access to resources for indigenous peoples in exchange for occupying chunks of land. So, if there was no signed or ratified treaty for a certain piece of land, that was then sold by the government to a multi-million dollar company to create oil pipelines, for example, then there would be a problem. See the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was an eye-opening moment for a lot of people. In fact, I'm pretty sure that was the event that made me aware of the indigenous land disputes that have been going on for a while now. If you don't know, the Dakota Access Pipeline project was going to be constructed on land that belonged to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and would pose a violation to the Fort Laramie Treaty. So the people of Standing Rock Sioux and their allies fought against the construction. It worked for a bit, and Obama denied a permit for the DAPL. But reality TV personality Donald Dump approved the project, and shortly thereafter, it was built. But the protest efforts weren't in vain. Like I said before, they made people aware of the unconstitutional practice of treaty violations and the illegal use of unceded territories. The opposition towards the DAPL set the stage for more contemporary pushback. The land back movement has seen a rise, and more people are beginning to realize that we're accessing certain resources at the expense of human beings. The problem with going against treaties to access oil, for example, is not just one of principle. Indigenous peoples often face repercussions of projects like the aforementioned. 
Oil pipelines are particularly harmful because they can leak toxic chemicals into the soil and water. The indigenous peoples who live in nearby reservations can get sick as a result, and because of their lack of access to quality healthcare due to years of systemic discrimination, this issue can become fatal. And Canada is just as guilty. People love to talk about how this is such a great country with super polite people, universal healthcare, a hot liberal prime minister, and maple syrups galore. Maple syrups? <laughs> maple syrup galore. But here's the thing, babe. We're racist as fuck. Yes, we're certainly better than the U.S. And I say that completely objectively with no biases whatsoever. But comparing any country to the States is unfair because that mofo was a train wreck. No offense to my American listeners. I love y'all. Your country is just a little bit in shambles. But back to my roast of Canada. We're not that great. On the topic of land back claims alone, I found quite a few incidents. The most recent being the 1492 land back lane story in Caledonia, Ontario. I don't know why I said that like a Midwesterner. In Caledonia, Ontario. <laughs> I have to stop. I'm literally offending people. The most recent being the 1492 land back lane story in Caledonia, Ontario, where a development company plans to build a subdivision on unceded Haudenosaunee territory. If we're talking oil pipelines, baby, we've got those too. In British Columbia, there's the Coastal Gas Link, which was never signed off on by Wet'suwet'en chiefs, and of course the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which Shwepin peoples are currently protesting. We can even sprinkle some intimidation and denial of natural resources. Just call Nova Scotia and ask them about the Mi'kmaq fishermen. And it doesn't help that land defenders are being criminalized, thereby increasing the already disproportionate incarceration of indigenous peoples. So really, it's just a major shit show. And I'm trying to be calm as I describe the current tensions regarding oil pipelines because I don't want to be dismissed as an overly emotional snowflake who doesn't acknowledge the benefits of an oil pipeline for the economy and therefore society as a whole. But the purpose of this podcast is to vent. So here are my personal thoughts. First, and I made this abundantly clear, people should not be accessing resources at the expense of other people's survival. Healthy soil and clean drinking water should be accessible to all Canadians, especially those who this land belongs to in the first place. Second, the fact that Indigenous peoples are the ones being hit the hardest by pipeline constructions because they were confined by settlers and colonists' trash to tiny pieces of land called reserves is fucking bullshit. That's like me coming into your house and telling you that you only get to stay in the dining room, and then... Once you get acclimated to dining room living, I come in and start working on a project that stinks up the place and threatens your quality of life. I go and microwave my Parmesan pasta, for example. But that's okay, because the project would be benefit to everyone. Who doesn't love a good Parmesan pasta? Except you don't get any. I mean, that might not be the best analogy, but I think you get the point. People also don't usually keep microwaves in their dining rooms. But let's just let that one slide. So, I've just presented you with all of this upsetting and perhaps anger-invoking information about one of the injustices that Indigenous peoples face in this country. 
If you're like me, you're probably hoping for some sort of solution that will absolve you of the guilt you may feel as someone who directly benefits from the oppression of a group of people. Unfortunately, there's no single solution to centuries of maltreatment and systemic discrimination. Like any injustice that is deeply ingrained into the fabric of society, this problem will take years of consistent effort to resolve. The good news is, Indigenous peoples and their allies are working on this and doing so with success. So what can you do? First, and you probably hear this all the time, but sign petitions. They let policymakers know what the people want and they only take you like a minute or two to complete. Second, research GoFundMe pages that go towards the land back effort. There's one that I supported recently, which funds the legal defense for those arrested during the 1492 land back lane dispute, the one that I talked about earlier in Caledonia, Ontario. It'll be up on Instagram at Venting Such Podcast, where I'll post a doc containing all the resources I used to inform this episode, as well as any other links that I find helpful. Finally, educate yourself and spread awareness. I'm a huge proponent of education because, as cliche as it sounds, knowledge is power. In a TED talk I watched in preparation for this episode, Greg Deal of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe said, When we omit things from history, then we immediately give value to those things. So often do indigenous stories and experiences go undervalued. I wanted to start my podcast by raising awareness on said experiences because they are valuable and incredibly important. And I hope I've convinced you of that today. If you found this episode in any way helpful, please consider sharing it with a friend. I just want to reach as many people as I possibly can so I can make the most impact. I'm signing off this session. But before I leave, I'd just like to remind you that things will get better. So stay optimistic. Just don't be complicit. Until next time.